New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today I'm hosting Greekophile and mythographer Phil Cousineau. He's the author of 40 books, and his most recent one is the novel The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus. I'm speaking with Phil at his home by remote connection. Welcome, Phil, to the New Dimensions Cafe. Wonderful. I've missed my cafes for over the last couple of years, so I'm, I'm glad to be drinking coffee in them again, and also to be in conversation. Because don't they go together? Cafes and yes, conversation? Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, this is very exciting. You know, going to your newest book, we often associate the myth of Sisyphus as a most depressing and frustrating struggle as he pushes the boulder up the mountain only to have it eternally roll back down over and over. And you've done extensive research on this myth and you present a more full picture of it. And I would ask you to help us understand more fully how the myth of Sisyphus relates to the 21st century. Well, thank you for that. What emerges in this story is a kind of psychological Rorschach test for our attitudes against struggle. If someone has a Pollyannish view that we can get through life without it, or we should avoid it, or pity people who are struggling then it's not the myth for you. It will be negative, as it was painted, literally painted by people like Titian during the Middle Ages, who was asked by a, a countess in Austria to illustrate seven of her walls with the seven deadly sins. And one of the walls was taken up by an image of Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill, as if it was a pitiful image. And that was one of the responses for a while. But in my book, a mythopoetic version of the old story, just like Shakespeare took a, a, a version about a suicidal Danish prince and rewrote it as Hamlet for English audiences, I have reworked this story of Sisyphus to show what Rollo May once told me was the nobility of struggle the tenacity of not giving up in your marriage, not giving up on your children if they get into trouble, not giving up on, uh, let's say, uh, environmental reform today. These are all, uh, these are now often described as Sisyphean tasks. So the word has actually entered the vocabulary as, as an adjective for something that is tough, is difficult, but, and this is my point in the retelling of the, of the myth, cannot be quit. The Desert Fathers once said, you are not required to finish the work that you are engaged in, but you are not allowed to quit either. You feel the paradox in that, that there's something in our relationship to struggle that moves into our deeper feelings about entitlement, 
what is owed to us in the world, I have tried to look for the moment of joy when Sisyphus in the underworld vanquishes his own sorrow, when he looks at the stone and says, I am equal to my burden. I can do this. I will not allow myself is to give up on this and task. despair. It can feel like it's going on for all of eternity, which is the metaphor at the core of this story. But truthfully, there's a way out of our depression, our melancholy, our cynicism about the modern world. There is a release point, and that is... I hope I've made it clear in the book when Sisyphus, one day out of many, goes to the bottom of the hill, pivots with his feet in the mush, and looks at the boulder and begins to actually love it. At that moment, the burden lessens. And I find that is an unassailable metaphor for our own lives. Can we turn around and look at the routines, the monotony, the not-so-fun aspects of our life, and begin to love it. At that moment, we turn sorrow and resentment into joy. I'm thinking of the two words that often cause us to stop in the struggle. We just get bored of the struggle, and then we want to give up, or we despair. I know, particularly in what we're facing, the different challenges of the 21st century is climate change or polarized politics or the rise of authoritarianism as a political strategy. All of this, it just seems like, oh, it's so overwhelming, Phil. It's just, it's so big. What can my little self do? So what does this myth in the retelling of it, in your opinion, have to do with maintaining the struggle? And what is struggle? What is the root of that word? I know you love words. I was fortunate enough to also spend some time with the great humanist psychologist Rollo May, who once told me that the great Gatsby novel by Fitzgerald and the myth of Sisyphus are two most powerful weapons against modern narcissism, our lust for money, our lust for materialism, and outward success, because those are roads that will never satisfy our deeper need. Why go on? In his beautiful book, a tonic for me for many years, The Courage to Create, Rollo May writes that true creativity is having the capacity to make something new despite our despair. You notice that last phrase? There was always a reason not to create, not to try to change our problems, not to make a better world. The creative artist, the environmentalist, the activist, finds the courage despite the despair that is part of our world. And that's at the heart of this story. I found the evidence for it in many of the great plays by Euripides, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and later Ovid. Many writers right up into the modern age where Sisyphus is not a representation of feudal struggle. That's the tripping point. If you look at anybody trying to make the basketball team, trying to get an exhibition of her photography. If you think of all these efforts going at it again and again, the tenacity as futile, you need instruction <laughs> because 
the great accomplishments in life are made by people who never quit. What is it? Muhammad Ali said, the shame isn't in being knocked down. The shame is not getting back up again. <laughs> and that's pure Sisyphus, right? That he will turn at the bottom of the hill and he will continue to push to get to the top. But then what I love about his story is he's considered the, the shrewdest of mortals, the most cunning, the wisest. That's really in his name. So he's able to persuade Persephone, the wife of Hades, to give him three days to return into the underworld, a very symbolic time, right? Three is always the time of rebirth. It's a number always associated with rites of passage, uh, descents into the underworld and the resurrection again. To do what? It reminds me of that old notion that's in Robert Lowell's wonderful play on Prometheus, Change or Die. Sisyphus has that moment, as I think we all did during the worst of the pandemic, when we think either I have to find a way to cope or something in me is going to die, either spiritually or physically. But I also have to turn the sorrow, the anger, the resentment at losing a couple of years out of our lives into something beautiful. That's what I tried to do with the novel. And I think because I'm in touch with so many filmmakers, artists, painters, photographers, activists, that we have been at work trying to turn this grief into something that will actually heal ourselves and the world. You also asked me about struggle. Struggle is, is a word. It's a Warshock word. You can see people just, some people will flinch at the word and others will say, Marathoners, for example. <laughs> yeah. You can begin, you can end. But do you have the strength to do the middle miles? <laughs> the middle miles. Isn't that a wonderful metaphor? Do you have the strength to keep struggling, even if your pain and your lungs are burning? Do you have the strength and the capacity to do one more version of that story, that book, that dance, that political legislation that you need to pour forward? So struggle originally, since you asked, simply meant to strive. I find that so beautiful. Later, that took on negative connotations as if it is beneath us to show that there are aspects of life that are tough, that we are struggling. How many times when you've lost someone that you love, did someone say, all right, time's over for the grief. You need to get back to your life. There was something, at least in the American psyche, that is suspicious and wary of dwelling too much on our struggles, our grief, or even death. This story tells us that there is no healing without going into the underworld. There is no rebuilding ourselves without looking deeply into the face of our own grief. Why? because the joy is on the other side of that grief. I love that. I love that. And I know that this retelling of this myth is showing the process of this struggle that Sisyphus is going through, and he ultimately is loving it and embracing it rather than resisting it, which just is more painful than ever. I think it's what it's showing. Thank you. There was a phrase that kept working at me, almost like, what do they call them now? The earworm. There's a, 
a ditty or a song that you can't get out of your head. And it came straight from a dream. I woke up in that hypnagogic state one morning last summer while on the umpteenth draft of this book. And the phrase from my dream self, you might say, was, will any wisdom come out of this suffering? That's a pandemic question, isn't it? Will we have learned anything about our deep self, our social self, our community, our neighbors, our friends, or will it have all been for naught? I'm arguing in this book, and I've spent years working on it, that the deeper wisdom comes from the deeper suffering, if we have the courage to face it head on. I'm thinking that each of us are commissioned to look at this. I mean, it's very individual, and each individual then will contribute to the whole as we stick to this Sisyphean task. Yes, thank you for that. The other element in this, which allowed me not to be completely in the shadows in the underworld with the struggle, was his love for his wife, Merope, who's one of the seven sisters, the daughters of Atlas. And today, if you look up in the sky, you will only see six of the seven, because the seventh was Merope. And according to the Greeks, she was banished from the sight of mortals because she fell in love with one of them. And I, I find that utterly beautiful. And at the same time, her compassion for this king who was trying to do the right thing, who was constantly sacrificing himself for the greater good, it helps fill in for me, a very mysterious element of this, and I believe I'm the first one to get to it. Sisyphus's great-great-great-grandfather was Prometheus, which in Greek means foresight. So Sisyphus was granted prophecy. What did Prometheus do to make him infamous, famous? He stole fire from the altar of Zeus at Olympia. But why? This is the element of genius, and it's why Hillman, Jung, and so many of the depth psychologists, Marion Woodman, continue to, to mine this vein of wisdom, because Prometheus felt sympathy for human beings who up until then were cold, brutish, hadn't invented anything. He felt sorry for them, and he knew that there was something in fire, the mythologem in fire, that would allow human beings to begin to think, to feel, to innovate. So he's the father of civilization by giving us the gift of fire. Now, his great-great-great-grandson fills in, for me, what is a half a story. All right, fire is cosmic. It's a cosmic fire. It's a cosmic element. But Sisyphus is to water what Prometheus is to fire. It's been there all along, and it just took me years to realize this. If you remember in the story, the river god's daughter has been abducted by Zeus, the great philanderer, as he's sometimes called. <laughs> and the river god finds out that only one mortal, Sisyphus, saw what happened and knows where his daughter is. So he says, I will turn off the water because I'm the river god. And you will have no water in your cisterns and your wells. Your crops will die. Your animals will die. And the implication is, Sisyphus, your wife and your kids will die. 
So he sacrifices himself to ensure that the Greeks have water along with their fire. Now, to me, that balances out these great notions of the Greeks that we have some gifts from the gods, but there's a dramatic shadow side to every gift that you actually accept from the gods. So you're saying that the tale is really helping us to see that this struggle, this task we have that seems unending, there is a reward in the end, that it gives life meaning. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Amali Bloom, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think that's what Camus found in the myth. What did he write in another essay? In the midst of darkness, I found in me an invincible summer. He wrote that in an essay from Algiers. At the same time, he was writing this allegory, if you will, about the need to resist authoritarianism because the Nazis had occupied France for four years. And he writes in such emboldened prose, even in the midst of his struggle, the great king of Corinth, we have to think of him as happy. And that's what I tell my writing students. That's what I tell myself if I have to do the same thing again and again and again. Why? To get it right. To get it right. There is joy that is released in being tenacious about pursuing our dreams. Oh, Phil, we could just go on and on. I love what you've done and brought forth in this myth for us in here in the 21st century, made meaning of it for us. Thank you so, so much. I've been speaking with Greekophile and mythographer Phil Cousineau, author of 40 books, including The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus. And to find out more about his work, you can go to his website, philcousineau.com. And he spells his last name C-O-U-S-I-N-E-A-U, philcousineau.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe. I invite you to please join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a 1,000 hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.